Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Amy Silman, and I'm an artist, and I also write about art. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. You become a person who's speaking maybe to, both toward and against an idea, and maybe you're working out that dialectic in the process of writing. And that's where it became connected to me, to my painting. Because that's exactly the space that I wanted the paintings to articulate in their very being. This episode, we have a returning guest host. The curator and writer Jarrett Ernest, an old friend of the podcast, is completing his three-part miniseries on a subject he has always been deeply interested in, serious artists who are also serious writers. If you like this episode featuring the great painter Amy Silman, be sure to go back and listen to his conversations with Nyland Blake and Lorraine O'Grady if you haven't already. I'm Jarrett Ernest, your guest host for this episode. The painter Amy Silman has written a number of essays that have become art school classics. Her arguments about color, for instance, are regularly cited in studio visits in classrooms around the country. A few years ago, we sat next to each other at a mutual friend's wedding and promptly got into a heated disagreement about our favorite preferred color theorists. I'm staunchly for Johannes Itten, while she is devoted to Joseph Albers. We recorded this conversation earlier this year about her collected essays, Faux Pas, which was published in late 2020. So I think that maybe the way I wanted to start today was to ask you something that I haven't asked you before. Um, I think of you so much as someone who identifies as a painter in an almost existential sense. And I want to know when it is that you started writing or you started to feel that writing could be an extension of the work you're doing as a painter in a way that was important for you. I think it was very clearly for me in 2009, I went to live in Berlin for a residency and I was trying to organize a show during that time and I understood something I hadn't understood before about how the work that I was doing was connected to my sense of humor and to the kinds of drawings that I would make or or even little scraps of things that I would write that weren't painting. And so I really, it's it was the advantage of travel and being taken out of your normal circumstance and kind of understanding that your audience won't necessarily come into the gallery with a pre-existing um, understanding of, of your work. And, and I realized that I needed a kind of translation device. That was the first time that I embedded a zine with my paintings. And in the zine, I wrote an essay. 
and the essay in a, in a funny way came to feel like an extension of the paintings that were in the room to, to me. I don't think that's how they were seen by the audience, but I experienced this very liberating sense that all of a sudden my field was expanded. It seems to me that when an artist writes or chooses to write or has the occasion to write, they're working from maybe slightly different imperatives than someone who we might think of who's just operating as a critic or an art historian. And I want to know that um, in the process that you had of putting together your book of writing, how did you reflect on that? Like what, what it meant for you to gather this, this collection of your writing as a painter? Well, you know, I didn't gather it and I felt like I was friends with Benjamin Thorell, who helps run After Eight Books, but at the time he was running a gallery in Paris. Benjamin um, proposed this to me when he had this newer bookshop and they were publishing books. And I was very honored and excited. And then we worked on it for a really long time and it became my pandemic activity to sort of go to your question. I think it was a series of invitations only. I was invited by a painter to, you know, write, write something about my relationship to abstraction. That was Jackie Sococcio. And that was for Bomb. I was invited by, at one point I was invited by Stephen Westfall, uh, a painter who also writes to write something about his work. I think because he just thought I could do it. I think if you literally do it once or twice, people think, oh, she could do that. You know what I mean? So if you you do one, you get a reputation for having done it, and then you might get other invitations. One thing that happens is that um, when you start putting stuff like that out into the world, it's almost like people then ask what they need from you in the world. You know, it's like nobody is being right. like, Amy Silman, you have to make this painting. There's a gun to the back of your head. But it's like, it's something that you're doing from a deep inner need. But when someone asks you to write an essay, you're like, oh, I'm responding to something that, um, that, that is being recognized about like the way I'm functioning in the world. And I think there's something kind of interesting about that because it's some, somehow something that you don't totally control. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying what you're saying and as I'm thinking more deeply about what what led me to even have a collection of writing published i i immediately understand something that also should be front and center which is that i started writing toward things and i realized in um that time in berlin when it became embedded with my paintings that i was writing against things mm. and um that's a really key part of the practice, I think, because um, I started as a kind of an enthusiast who could articulate certain ideas. And for whatever reason, you know, like like I said earlier, or like you just said, you know, if you occasionally write an essay, it means that you can string sentences together. You can observe clearly, you know, intentions or form or something. And then and then you get invited to put pen to paper. Um, but then there comes a next step where I think you're talking back to something, something that you may not like or not, or, or you want to, um, 
rebut or have an argument with. And that's maybe like phase two, where you stop being an occasional fan or an occasional uh, articulating um, uh, articulator, and you become a person who's, the, who's speaking maybe to, both toward and against an idea. And maybe you're working out that dialectic in the process of writing. And that's where it become, became connected to me, to my painting. Because that's exactly the space that I felt that I wanted the paintings to articulate in their very being. One of the reasons I was so excited to see this book coming out and also excited to have this conversation is that your essays are really important within art schools. Like they're really useful to teach. I always, I hear them referenced by like students and like young painters in their studios all the time, perennially all over the country. And I think that um, that maybe has something to do with the fact that I think of you as someone who's a very serious teacher. I'm a school marm. A school marm. You know, you're really <laughs> committed teacher, you know, like you really care about pedagogy and the voice in the essays in a way is the voice of a very gifted teacher. Well, <laughs> as a school marm, I understand that it's important to recognize, I guess, beginner's mind. I've heard about that from Zen Buddhist texts. You're remembering that when you started, you were completely confused and you didn't even know the names of the people and you were absolutely baffled by what was supposed to be so um, good about what we were all looking at. And somebody had to either convince you or explain it, or you had to fall into that information or that knowledge somehow. Like, remember when, I don't know if you remember this for yourself, but I remember going to museums when I first moved to New York when I was 19 and literally looking at people sitting on benches at museums and, and, and literally saying, what are they thinking? I have no idea what they're doing. They're looking at something, but I don't know what they're doing. And what's the, what's the object doing? Part of teaching is, being, is just being really clear and dismantling some of the mystique and just saying, look, here's, let's, let's just look at something that's actually very confusing and not be afraid to unpack it and try to demystify it and explain really, really clearly in basic language, what's at stake. One of the things that recurs in, like, both with talking with you, which is one of the reasons that I really enjoy talking with you about art, um, and in your writing, is a willingness to think, like, wait, what if all of this is wrong? You know, like, what, right. what if the things that you've been told are wrong? Like, what would you do? How would you start reconstructing what might be right? And I think that was also at stake when I was living in Berlin. And that's probably why the, the, the phase two that I was talking about, where you start writing against or you start talking back to something, that's the part, you know, that are, um, accelerated for me in, in the idea of writing, because I recognized that writing could be a really elaborate form of questioning uh, a dogma. And a, a great deal of the pieces that are in the, in the book were prompted by questions where I got mad at something and I wanted to get into the fight. You know, I wanted to get into an, into an argument. 
and um, maybe one of the ones that I can talk about most clearly is when I went to the MoMA, I had been to the Abstract Expressionist show and I heard through the grapevine that an artist whom I know had said, ugh, who cares about abstract expressionism? It's just the domain of dead white men. And I remember thinking, well, a lot of the people in the show are women. So who are they? Are they men? You know, and I knew about great abstract painters who were neither white nor men nor dead. And, you know, so in a way, um, my question, it wasn't a, an unusual question. It was something that's been taken up um, in, in exhibition history and, and, and literature and stuff. But, but I was kind of asking because I felt like the question was boiling down to um, very, very simplistic terms. And of course, I wanted to speak back to a certain kind of critique. But then other times, I sometimes want to speak back to painting. And, you know, argue with the terms that we've been given within painting. Well, I mean, what what you were saying makes me wonder. I mean, you have been so deeply entrenched in the art world and followed the changes of this kind of argument that happens and the, the way that the terms have changed over the past few years and or the past few decades. But I even think over the past 10 years, the terms have changed uh, quite radically. And I'm wondering when you were looking at the collection of, of essays that you've written or just in your life, how have you observed the, the like stakes of this argument? Well, the stakes keep shifting back and forth. You know what I mean? I don't think the stakes just change one way and then keep going, you know, in a nice progression. I think that um, in a weird way, in some, what I've partly observed is that the stakes um, swing back and forth between various kinds of poles. There was an article in the paper about a show at the Guggenheim of Jenny Jones, the artist Jenny C. Jones, and, and the person wrote, she asserts her right to abstraction. And, you know, I think, for instance, um, that's, a, that's a kind of an old, that's kind of an old thing to assert. I mean, I think Jenny's work is really amazing and I absolutely love her and her work and what she's doing. And I think she brings absolutely new stakes and new questions and new form to this argument. But I think the question, you know, who gets to assert their right, who has to assert their right to abstraction is kind of an old question in abstraction. Right. Well, also, when you were talking about the polls, like, please don't tell me that the polls are still abstract versus representation. Like, I, I just can't believe that, like, that is but that's still where we end up. I know, but pitifully, they sort of still are. I mean, I think those are ridiculous <laughs> terms. We both understand those to be ridiculous terms. But uh, sad to say, that's still the way, like, you know, sometimes if I see a um, blurb about myself in some place where they're trying to describe what I'm doing, they still say that. They still literally say, um, working between abstraction and figuration. And I'm like, oh, really? That's so dismaying. <laughs> but, but those are still terms. Those are still 
binaries on upon which you know a great deal of on, of 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 basic understanding is predicated as much as we you know want to envision a spectrum of activity you know and then a kind of three-dimensional chess game of such spectrums you know but people still need certain kinds of arguments to even understand uh the the boundaries of what they're looking at so that they can like orient themselves in some kind of clear way so when i was a student i went to a school where there was a, a music sound um department you know in the mfa program that i was at and you know everyone was like i don't really get poetry and i really don't get painting but nobody said i don't get music. I don't get the abstraction of music. They might be confused by, you know, experimental sound art, but they weren't like asking themselves fundamental questions about like what, you know, about the essentially abstract experience of listening to a non-linguistic form that comes into your ear. You know what I mean? So there were, there were still confusions about things that were not across the board, that were applied to particular kinds of discourses. And so, you know, there would be such a thing as, quote, difficult writing, you know what I mean? Or there would be such a thing as abstract art. That was still, that was still kind of confusing to people. One of the things, I actually haven't told you this, I hadn't thought about it until we have been having this ongoing conversation about process and writing, is that there's a, I have actually been obsessed with this problem. And there's a number of times where I've tried to address it. And so far, they've all been failures and they've never appeared anywhere. And one of them, just as an example, is um, our mutual friend, Josephine Halverson. Uh, when she was in Rome, I mean, the way that she paints at that time, at least, was durational. Like it had a very clear beginning and end and it had to all be executed within a certain amount of time. And I was like, oh, Josephine, I'm going to stay up all night with you and watch you paint and make notes on everything that you do. And then the result will be like this time-stamped time portrait of this painting as it comes into being. But um, there are things that I, and I did that. And there are things that are still interesting to me about that as an idea for a piece of writing, but it totally didn't get anything close to what you're talking about, which is like the um, inner imperatives of the painting as it's like finding its own way into existence. You know, that was not what I documented. And um, I'm gearing up to do another, weirdly, that was years ago, I'm gearing up to try another version of this again with a, with a sculptor. Like, I'm, I was like, I want to watch you make this sculpture from like the beginning to the end and just see if I can write about its coming into being. But I've found that the only resources for this kind of writing is like uh, modernist fiction. I don't know. It seems to be more that it's like experimental writing than criticism. Exactly. I mean, I think about Leslie Scalapino, who was a poetry teacher at Bard when I was there, who was, who was a great poet. She's no longer with us. But I remember her readings, you know, which were, you know, these hypnotic, hypnagogic, you know, recitations that opened, continually opened the present moment. Kind of like how if you read Gertrude Stein out loud or you read Wallace Walt Whitman out loud. For me, if I read Whitman or Stein out loud, I feel more 
that sense in both of them, even though they're both so different in the way they construct their work. But I feel this, you know, kind of euphoria and surprise and strangeness, you know, of this, as Gertrude Stein said, continuous present, you know, and it opens up. The studio is a very private place and so is the brain, you know. <laughs> and so so when you're sitting and writing, I think you're kind of in a similar space that I am interested in in the studio where I, I, I well, I don't know how you write. I'd be interested in how it works. But at least if I try to write an essay, I'm not writing down sentences necessarily to begin with. I'm writing down fragments you know, associations, notes, you know, even sometimes just lists of words, just some way to get going. You know, the way writing comes out of my head, at least, it's never, you know, it's uh, who writes, you know, nobody writes regular readable prose that comes out in that order. That's what you do when you edit, right? Or is it right? I don't know. I don't know how you write. Um, but I write, you know, kind of fragment, fragment style. And that fragment style is completely um, consistent with how I make art and also how I edit texts. This kind of materialistic process of adding and subtracting is, is how I develop some kind of writing. And it's why I think I can't write while I'm painting. Because whenever I'm asked to write something, if I'm in the middle of creating a bunch of studio, you know, if I'm working on a show right then, I can't do it. And I have to say no, because I can't do that linguistically while I'm doing it with 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 uh, paper and and no objects. I don't know why I can't do both. I ha have a like kind of a historical question, but that's sort of about the historical present, because I think that the essay that we were discussing earlier, the Abex and Disco Ball essay from 2010, that felt to me like it was still in in some ways, a response to like the long echoes of the death of painting, anti-painting discourse. Mm -hmm. And I happened to recently reread uh, Benjamin Buchlow's famous essay, Figures of Authority, Ciphers of Regression, in which he says like completely unproblematically that any artist who is returning to figuration or pictorial form away retreating from abstraction are either like victims of a false consciousness or just straight out proto-fascists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first of all, reading that from our present art world, that sounds like it was written in like a science fiction dystopia. <laughs> and also there was never any reckoning around that. Like, where was the moment where people were like, oh yeah, remember when like the authorities were telling us we weren't allowed to paint people for you know, 40 years. And like, now that's what everyone does. You know, it's like, how do you make sense of those kinds of shifts uh, within discourse if there is no kind of almost discursive accountability? Yeah, I don't know how you do. You just, you, you realize you don't live in, in uh, Benjamin Buchlow's world. Um, I mean, you, you don't live in, you know, one of the stark things that um, was clear to me when I lived in Berlin because I was living at an academy, you know, I was staying at the American Academy in Berlin for a, a period, and then I ended up staying on for a year. But at the academy, I had an opportunity to become really good friends with art historians for the first time. And my 
understanding immediately was that they studied entirely different things than I studied. They didn't know anyone I was talking about half the time. And I hadn't read any of the material that they were, you know, basing their entire existence on. You know what I mean? The gulf between what's supposedly going on in an art historical context and what's supposedly going on in an art making context is sometimes um, it's a, it's funny, you know, when, when really, really, really smart art historians ask you, who's Milton Avery? I've never heard of him. You just have to laugh and go, wow, we were not studying the same subject. That accounts for part of my writing that article about abstract expressionism, because what I was noticing was a, was an intense moment of materialism that was manifesting itself among young artists that I was meeting and was friends with, in particular ones who identified as trans. And they seemed to not have a problem with, um, you know, a certain kind of gestural painting, which was deeply um, imbricated in their daily, you know, they were, they were using it in their daily life in the studio freely and openly they were using paint and 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 smearing and process and they weren't thinking about eve klein and they weren't worrying about the problem of de kooning's misogyny or issue of they they weren't they didn't care about any of that they were doing something with their bodies that activated their relationship with the materials and tools of the studio in a very intimate way and the 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 intimacy was was um, at stake and was the in the immediacy and the not knowing, you know, the 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 suspension of 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 um, interpretive frameworks. You know, they were they were trans they were not interested in they weren't reading about it first. They were just jumping in. And I was really interested in that kind of hands on action and and of course i was also very moved by and looking at the way you know various artists that i knew cut and dragged and and you know shoved and you know combed through paintings you know in their studio well some listening to your narrating that that process made me think that maybe we could draw a distinction in terms of kinds of art writing or kinds of art writing that might be valuable in the present or in the future. And it seems like there's a model that people have when they think about criticism, which is the idea of like prohibition or like, you know, you're being told something was is bad or that you shouldn't do it. And I think the inverse of what you're describing, and I think the kind of criticism that you have really um been doing is one that's one of permission. Uh, that's yes. like a, a, a how do we um, create a capacity to make rather than police what people are making? It's hard though, because like, let's say one of the voices that has been really useful and interesting to me in thinking about abstraction is the echo of a writer like Fred Moten talking about his, you know, the right to remain unexplainable, you know, and, and, and I think that comes from, uh, or I think that, that, that whole idea of the right to remain obscure is a glissant, um, concept, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you do retain that right to not necessarily be um, explainable and explained, then you will maybe make work that's very, very difficult to write about. The task will not be to to unpack and open up and explain and, you know, make it all fit into bite-sized purchasable containers, right? And so what would be the task of a writing that accompanies a work that seeks to retain a certain kind of opacity? You know, would that be poetics? I guess so. And yet it's also still very hard to explain radical poetry to people as it is, you know, as it is hard to explain abstraction in a way still. You know what I mean? So how can you have a kind of writing that reflects our inner life properly and still maintains the sovereignty, you know, that our heads have? You know, like we we also don't, I can't see what you're thinking all the time, which is a very beautiful thing. Um, yeah, thank God. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested in what this kind of writing format can be or will be um, that will be that will be an accompanist for the kind of art that we would want to have, which isn't just illustrative or isn't just, you know, understandable. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know how to do that without, that's probably like why I would describe myself as a sort of formalist. Although the IST part is problematic. I think I'm just kind of formal, but I'm hoping that, um, I'm hoping that part of the thing that we would maintain in, in art and in writing would be a kind of the, the, the joy of the outer form itself that the thing takes as being as complicated as meeting another human being, you know, and not um, necessarily assuming that we have to like, you know, cut them up and into bite-sized pieces and understand every single thing they do. Amy, is there anything that you, when you were thinking about having this conversation, is there anything that you want to talk about you know, you've brought it up before with me, like that some of the way that I address art when I'm writing is anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious about the 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 discourse in the in art history about anthropomorphism. And it's something that I know is a big thing. It's a big subject in German art historians uh, writing, but I don't really understand the argument or what's at stake in that argument. I'm also really interested in the uh, idea of the possible prohibition against the anthropomorphic ness in art, which doesn't seem to necessarily be part of the conversation like you were talking about, about figuration. Well, you know, that that is interesting because, okay, so to kind of preface, I'm really interested in moves that you make, Amy, in your writing, where you especially will assume the form of a letter, like in one case, like a letter to Maria Lasnig, and another, a breakup letter addressed to, is it addressed to abstraction itself? Um, yeah. yeah. And it's like a weird, very, very funny uh, kind of pastiche of a breakup, but like talking about your relationship to the discourse of abstraction as though it were a person. 
And, you know, I remember when Isabel Groff's book came out, The Love of Painting, which is such a cynical title for what the book is about. And she does this kind of interesting mapping of like artists who, who figure the painting um, anthropomorphically. And so many painters that I know read that and were like, wow, yeah, that's exactly what I do. But like the point of what she was saying was that that was bad. <laughs> you know, like, know. it's and true. I'm obviously very interested in painting and all kinds of painting. And I don't really make distinctions based on them being paintings of people or paintings of a shape. But um, there's something that's very alarming in the way that um, a lot of figurative paintings are being discussed now. Is it as though they are people? transparently mm -hmm. and the approval or disapproval of the uh, of the aspects of the painting as an object pre precisely as an object are rendered irrelevant by the nature of our approval or disapproval of the subject as if it were a person it's as though there's a complete transparency between the person who made the thing and the thing or an equivalency yes yeah yeah, well, I think that's what Isabel is arguing against. I mean, I've read her book pretty carefully, and I think that is uh, perhaps what she's dealing with is the reception of an object, the way it goes into the world, which does kind of dovetail with my my response to her book, which was that I thought that she was describing something that didn't resemble my experience of a studio practice. Mm -hmm. You know, because a studio practice, which is not unlike a writing practice in my feeling and maybe also in yours, is it is alive. Uh, the uh, material is calling for certain uh, adjustments or, you know, addresses, you know, and so you're in a relationship with it as it's becoming form. Um, and that strange inchoate process is what I'm interested in the most. And it's what I'm interested in writing toward. Amy, I have to say, I felt like this conversation was so useful. I'm really glad that we had it because I feel like there was a stretch in there where it almost was like we were like doing a rough draft for a manifest, a manifesto of like new art criticism. Uh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Let's work on it. Yeah, Are, let's work. Well, that that means that I go to your um, writing studio for 24 hours and everything you do, I take note. You know what? It's <laughs> it's an open invitation. That so, could be very confusing. <laughs> so um, I want to say thank you for this conversation, Amy. I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswarner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Warner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. <laughs>